Praise the Lord. How's everybody doing this morning? Good? Amen. Praise the Lord. If you would, turn to Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 11 and 12. I'm actually going to be teaching from Esther this morning, but this scripture is the scripture that... um, God wants us to understand this morning in the, in, the, in the time that we live in. And I want you to pay very caref- careful attention to this message. You're going to learn a lot, and a lot's going to be thrown on you in the message. So just really be attentive and follow along. And it, it helps to get the information at the beginning of this message to understand everything that God's unfolding, because this is the Word of the Lord for today and uh, the time that we live in. So I really want you to hear it this morning. It says, For I know the plans, everybody say plans, I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, And I will listen to you. Do you understand what God is telling us? I have plans for you to prosper you and not to harm you. And then you will come to me and you will pray to me and I will listen to you. God has a plan for our lives. We hear that all the time. But in order for God... To be able to bring good things to our lives, we have to trust in Him. We have to be obedient and trust in the Lord and just say, Lord, I know you have plans, and whatever is in front of me right now is going to fulfill that plan in my life. I trust you. And just like Jason was saying, it probably didn't look like Joseph could trust the Lord because He had promises on his life. How many know that? Joseph had promises that God was going to elevate him and and, and bless his life and do things that were almost unbelievable for Joseph to even hear. And Joseph held on to the promises, and he was faithful to the Lord. And initially, he got put in prison, and all he had done was be faithful. How many know that? And you say, well, that's pretty simple. He probably read Genesis and knew what was going to happen in his life, right? No, he had no idea. God didn't tell him. God made him the man he was because he trusted him in most likely a damp, rodent-infested prison. He trusted God, and God made him the person he needed to be to be second in command over all of Egypt, which was the major world empire at that time. And so we're going to see, as we get into the Scripture, what God wants from our life. Okay, so let's pray, and let's pray that God would speak to our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, Lord, I pray that I would speak only by your Spirit, Lord God, not my intelligence, Lord God, not my own mind, uh, but from your heart, Lord. And Lord, I pray that every ear... Uh, would be able to hear, Lord God. You said those who um, hear, hear by the Spirit of the Lord. And so right now, Lord, I pray that you open every ear, every heart. Father, that we can hear your message for us today, Lord. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus and everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. So this is one that's going to take a little bit of setup to make you understand what's going on here. We live in a world right now, in fact, the title of my message is God's Plans. And so we live in a world right now that, how many would agree, is a little bit frustrating when it comes to figuring out what's going on. Like we're looking around, we're looking for information, right? And I'm going to separate it in two kinds of information right now we're trying to figure out as Christians, right? One is, was there fraud in our election? How many know that's a question the world has right now? And on that particular question, I feel very comfortable saying that there was. 
because my eyes see things and my eyes see irregularities. And I actually, there's opinion both ways. Is it enough to change an election? And I would say absolutely myself based on what I see. But I would separate another piece of information that I don't consider to be the same and kind of separate. And that is all of the conspiracy theories about what may or may not happen in the next couple of days. So if you're watching this message or listening, you got to remember people will listen to this a year from now. And so they won't know the situation that we're in, but we're currently on the precipice of an inauguration, and there's a lot of um, information that we don't know if it's right or wrong. How many agree? And so the best thing you can do when you have all that information is be prepared. Because the worst that is going to happen, I tell people, is you're going to consume extra water, extra food. You can put your money, you know, if you took a little bit out, back in the bank. How many agree? So it's really wise to always be prepared. But the truth is there's so much information, misinformation, conspiracy theories that we really can't prove or disprove. How many agree with that? And so we're just cautiously trying to figure out what is happening, but we know something's happening because we know that there is a target on conservatives. How many agree with that? That's pretty easy to see. We're a target as Christians, so God's people have a target on them right now. And so the story I'm going to tell you today, if the worst is true of all the conspiracy theories, this is what happened in this story. And I'm not saying that they're true or they're not true. I'm saying be prepared for anything because I don't know. Nobody really can tell except for maybe a handful of people might know some information, but we just don't have that information, right? Everybody agrees with that so far? So if the worst happens, okay, this is worst case scenario. The Bible gives us examples of things that are worse than what we're going through right now. In fact, there are so many crisis periods in world history. How many know that things haven't changed now from what they were from the beginning of time? There's nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes says. There's always been rich people trying to control the world. There's always been ungodly people that have put a target worldwide on on, on people of God. Okay, there's always been a hatred and a resentment toward Christians or the Jewish people, okay? And there's always been that animosity there. So what I'm going to show you today is I'm going to unravel a story, and you're going to have to be patient with me because you need to understand this story. Because this story literally is everything we think is a possibility today, but it's on a much grander scale. Okay, and you say, well, that's not possible. This is the worst of times. But this story, if you will listen and understand it, is far worse than what we're facing. And God had a plan through the whole thing. In fact, God was way ahead of the enemy. And so if you don't understand God's plan and how God works, then how are you going to be faithful through this crisis? And the Bible says the Word of God is there Uh, as examples for us on how to behave today. Okay, so we need to know this information that God has a plan and the plan is always much bigger than what the enemy is plotting. Okay, God has a plan that's in motion and, um, and he's invisible. We don't see him working and so we think sometimes he's not. Now what's fascinating about the book of Esther and it's troubled some scholars over the course of time, doesn't trouble me, but there are two books of the Bible that doesn't mention God in it at all. And Esther's one of them, and Song of Solomon is the other one. And so that bothers some people, but to me, it is a one of the remarkable things about the book, because the star of this book, the hero of this book, the one that is... Um, elevated in this book is God himself, and he's invisible. They don't mention him. They don't say his name. They, um, he's not part of the narrative. But as you read it, you recognize there is a series of coincidences in this book 
that are impossible to happen unless God is supernaturally planning these events. And you're going to see it as we go along. There's just so many coincidences that God's providence, and that's what that's a word I want you to really begin to understand, the providence of God. The providence of God means that He always has a plan. And can I tell you something? You can't take the events in the Bible and say, well, God did it exactly this way with Esther, or did exactly this way with Moses, or did exactly this way with Abraham, so that's exactly how he's going to do it today. Because every time God has a unique plan. The enemy doesn't know the plan, and most times we don't know the plan. But understand this, God always has a plan. And we don't have to sit back and say, God, come up with a plan here. Do you see what's going on? Help me out here. You see what's going on in our country. You see what's going on in politics. God, please come up with a plan. And God's like, oh my goodness, I better come up with a a plan. But see, God isn't playing checkers like the enemy does. God's playing chess. God's moving people in the right places well before Satan ever had a plan. And so as Christians, if we don't understand that, we're going to panic all the time. We're going to be back and forth, trusting God, not trusting God, stressful, panicked, and we're going to act as if there isn't a God and there isn't a plan. But God, as you'll see here, is invisible, but He's working out His plan to perfection. And so let me start with the background. And this is very important, and this is the part where I don't want to lose you. I like history. But even more than liking history, I want you to totally understand this story, okay? This story is the world stage. This Some people read Esther, and and it takes place in about 480 B.C., 480 years before Christ, okay? And it places itself in the Persian kingdom, which is southern Iran right now. Okay, Iranians consider themselves Persians and are very proud of their culture. Uh, they resent being called Muslims, and you know they're very proud Persian people, and they're very proud of the Persian kingdom. Okay, and this is 480 BC, and they are the world power. One thing you have to understand is this is the biggest empire probably the world has ever seen. He had 128 different rulers around the world that reported directly to him, and he collected monies from each one of those people, those governments. This kingdom actually went all the way over to Libya, which is in Africa. It's just to the west of Egypt, okay? So the African continent, it stretched to Libya, put Egypt, that whole area. It went all the way over to India, Okay, went all the way up into Asia and covered Turkey. This is a massive kingdom, the biggest probably the world has ever seen. It's bigger than any world kingdom we've ever seen, okay? And so the Persian kingdom is the location, and this is a very critical period of time. Okay, one part of the story, the first part that I'm going to talk about, happens before a massive war, and the other part happens after a massive war. It's about a four-year period between 483-82 to 477-78. And if you don't understand that, you won't understand a lot of details of Esther. So what's happening in between? Because at the beginning, there's an event, there's a space in between, and then there's the other event. And I'm going to explain those events in a minute. But in the middle, the king of Persia, his name is Xerxes, if you ever study world history. Okay, that's very important because in the Bible, they don't call him that. They call him Ahasuerus. Okay, so his name is Ahasuerus, but his real name, or the name that he's known by in history is Xerxes, and he is the king of the world. In fact, they call him the king of kings because over all the world, he has kings set up, and they report to him, and it's almost like colonization would be today. And so this is a massive kingdom, and you have to understand, they're the world power. And I'm going to relate this to America, not because I'm saying this is happening in America. I'm just trying to give you the scale of how serious of a situation they're in and the crisis they have, okay? 
And so I'm going to be comparing it again, I'm telling you. If every conspiracy theory were true, which I'm not saying that. Everybody understands that, right? But I'm saying if it were, this is worse than what we're facing right now. And you can trust God with his plan. Okay? So Xerxes is comparable to the president of the United States. How many understand that? It's the largest empire. It's the biggest world power, which is exactly what we are, correct? We're the biggest world power in the world right now. So Xerxes is like the president of Persia, all right? There will be a character I'll talk about later. His name is Haman. Haman it would be like our vice president. He was elevated in this story to the position of second in command, which would be like our vice president. But there's a twist with Haman. As I get into Haman, Haman goes to the president, okay, and he bribes him. And the bribe is, the bribe is 350 tons of silver. It's 100,000 talents. Now listen to this. I have my phone here. If you go to Google... And you say, how much is 100,000, well, the new reality. If you type in, are you, just ask Google, how much is 100,000 talents worth? Because Haman went to the president or the uh, leader of the world at that time and he bribed him. Again, if all conspiracy theories were true, and everything happened as a lot of conspiracy theorists think. This is what they think is happening to us, correct? 100,000 talents is 200,000 years of labor. It's 60 million, million working days. In modern money, it's $3.48 billion, 350 tons of silver. So I want you to think about this. This is really happening. This is not a conspiracy theory. Okay, we think it might happen. We don't know if it is or isn't happening. How many know that bribery is something that's the top of our minds right now? If a guy bribes the king with $3.48 billion, how much money does he have? And the bribe of $3.48 billion, do you know what it was for? If you read Esther chapter 3, and I'm going to get into it as we go along here, it was to kill all Jewish people. To rid the kingdom of all believers. Okay, there's no Christians at this time. All believers are Jewish. So they want to rid the kingdom completely of Jews. And he's giving the king, offering $3.48 billion to his treasury. Plus he says, we're going to loot all the money that the Jews have. So how much money would that be worth? Because they were pretty well off in the kingdom. This kingdom was very, uh, the Persian kingdom was very kind to other religions. People were able to live in the kingdom, prosper, grow. They were a large segment of the population, but not large enough, you know, for the king to worry about putting them all to death, okay? And so this is a major financial deal that he's trying to make with them. How many know that's maybe equivalent to what we think could be happening? Or it could be much worse. Every, just imagine, every believer in the world to be exterminated. Can you imagine that? That's what's happening here. And so as we look at the setting, what is the king doing in that period of time in between? Now the story starts um, with the king at his palace in southern Iran. Okay, and he's at his palace and he's having a six-month a series of meetings, or almost looks like a party, really. But what it is is a strategic summit militarily. Okay, militarily, he's meeting at his palace, and all of his administration is meeting for six months, and they're planning an invasion of Greece. Okay, the Persians, they removed the Babylonian world empire, okay? They dominated the Babylonians, which was the world empire. How many know the Babylonians enslaved the Israelites? Okay, so the Israelites had been in slavery to the Babylonians. Follow me here. You'll understand this. I know you can. 
The Babylonians in, enslaved the Jewish people. Then the Persians came in and overtook the Babylonians. Okay? When the Persians did, they gave the Jews permission to go back and build their temple. Okay? This is the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. God had prophesied a couple of years earlier that I'm going to raise up a person named Cyrus. And well in advance, several hundred years, he said his name is actually going to be Cyrus. And so Cyrus was this first ruler of the Persian Empire. He defeats the Babylonians. Everybody follow me so far? I don't want you to get bored with history. All right? And so Cyrus is the king. Cyrus says you can go back and build your temple now. But how many know, don't get the false idea that they're on their own now. They're still under the Persian kingdom. Okay? They're still living under the Persian system in the Persian culture And most of the children of Israel didn't go back uh, with Zerubbabel and Ezra to rebuild the temple. Okay, a lot of them stayed in the pagan society. And this is a group of people that didn't go back. They were in Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. And so he's having a military summit. Okay, and he's planning on invading Greece because even though Greece is part of the kingdom, Greece defeated them in a battle at Marathon. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the battle at Marathon? The battle of Marathon, is it's, it's, it's kind of well known because there was a man that ran 26 miles during that battle, and that's why our marathons are now 26 miles. And so, but Marathon, the Greeks embarrassed the Persians by defeating them. And so Cyrus's son is now king. His name is Darius. Okay, and Darius was very embarrassed that he lost at Marathon. So he had a burning desire to go in and just make a statement uh, against Greece. Okay, now follow me here. I know, I know this is boring for some people. So he gathers and amasses a massive army like the world has never, ever seen. Now all the historians back in that day said the army was about one million people. And the world, the empire at that time was 50 million. And they claim he amassed an army of 1 million to go to Greece and make a powerful statement about the Persian kingdom. Okay, now this six-month summit is planning for that invasion, right in the middle of the story of Esther. In fact, it's right in the middle of uh, Ezra and Zerubbabel going back to build the temple, and right before Nehemiah gets there to build the walls. Okay, everybody following me? Am I losing anybody? So he's getting ready to go to Greece, and he gets soundly defeated. Like when I say he's defeated, it doesn't mean he lost his empire. It just means that he's lost Greece. And so some of the most famous battles happened there. The Battle of Thermopylae is the one where 300 Spartans were able to uh, hold their ground against this massive Persian army led by Xerxes. And so you hear a lot about that battle. There was another battle. Um, it was a naval battle, and, and the Persians lost about 300 warships. And so these are famous battles. These are world history-shaking battles. The two great empires of that time, the Greeks and the Persians, are battling. So this happens right in the middle. So while Xerxes is planning for this invasion, God's already working. God already knows that they're going to try to exterminate every believer that's in the world at that time. And it hasn't even happened yet. So how do I know God's already working? Because there have already been people that have been born. Like, for instance, let me give you some examples away from this story. Remember, this story is around 480 B.C. Way back in about 722 B.C., about 300 years before this, The Assyrians become the world power, and because of the fact that northern Israel was not obedient to the Lord, God started to prophesy that I'm going to send the Assyrians, and they're going to overtake you, and they're going to sack northern Israel. But a hundred years before that happened, God already knew it was going to happen, right? So he sent a little man out of the belly of a fish named Jonah. Jonah went to the capital, which was Nineveh, And that entire city, which was the capital of Assyria, got saved. History will show you that they started to serve one God, which was very unusual 
during that period of time. They served one God and one God only. And so what happened was, because of the evangelist Jonah, who did not want to preach to them, did not want them to get saved, thought they were an enemy, because of that, God had put people in the administration that were sympathetic toward the believers because Jonah had saved that capital city and there were people all over the city that still served the Lord. And so when the Assyrians came in, God was so merciful because he had predisposed the Assyrians to not hate them. How many think God's great? You say, well, what about the Babylonians? The Babylonians were cruel. They were fierce. They established their kingdom with violence. This is about... Uh, this is the kingdom that overtakes the Assyrians, okay? The Babylonian kingdom. Well, God sent a man named Daniel. How many of you know Daniel was the second in power in a pagan government? What a miracle Daniel was. So when the children of Israel get overtaken by the Babylonians, who is in the palace that is favorable toward them? You getting chills like me? God always is ready and planning and knows what he has to, he has to one way discipline his children who are the believers, but he also has to protect them. And so the Babylonians were favorably disposed, right? Persians. The Persian kingdom, when they first overthrew the Babylonians, who was still in the palace? Daniel. Now about a hundred years later, We're in the palace, and God's doing something again to protect his people. When the Greeks came in power, Alexander the Great had a dream the night before he was about to sack Israel, about to destroy Israel. He's conquering the known world. He was cruel. He was aggressive. He had a a dream the night before he came to Israel, and he said, you're going to see a high priest from the temple is going to come out and greet you. And exactly like it happened in Alexander the Great's dream was exactly what he seen the next day. And he gave great favor to Israel because he respected the God of Israel because he was the most ancient. And so God was way ahead. God was giving dreams, you know, and it wasn't happening in other places. So here we are in this period of time. So let's see what God's unique plan is in this period of time. And here's how God starts working. In the beginning of Esther... You see a queen, her name is Vashti, okay? And I'm sure the ruler of the known world, okay? He wasn't just the president of the superpower. He was the ruler of the whole world. He was called the king of kings, okay? Now, we know who the real king of kings is, but that's what he was called, the king of kings, okay? And so Vashti must have been beautiful. She must have been like... um one of the most beautiful women in the world because it was the wife of Xerxes, right? But Xerxes is there for a strategic planning meeting for six months. And history will tell you, and then Esther will tell you, that he was drunk. He wasn't a good man. Okay, these Persian kings, don't fool yourself. Cyrus was very kind, very loving, but he wasn't a believer. Okay, in fact, the Bible says he wasn't. It says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus and he's not going to be a believer. Okay, but God was using him. Darius was a little bit more aggressive and mean, but uh, he wasn't as kind as Cyrus, but he wasn't a believer either. And then Xerxes was not a believer at all. Okay, and he was much more aggressive, very hot-tempered, had very bad temper issues, historians will tell us. And so Xerxes is drunk with his military soldiers. And he wants Vashti to come out and he wants them to see her beauty and her body and everything about her. Well, historians will say that at that time she was probably uh, pregnant with Artaxerxes and she did not want to come out and be shown like that. It offended her. And so because it offended her, she said, I absolutely am not coming out. Now get this. He's so hot-tempered. And so used to getting his way that he removed her from the palace and said she is no longer in this position. You say, well, what a terrible thing it is for Vashti. She was a Gentile princess. Now, here's one thing you have to understand. The Persian kings would only marry a woman from seven noble families. They wouldn't marry anybody else. There were seven noble families. That's who they could marry. But because of the offense of Vashti, 
One of the advisors came and said, if you let that stand, all the women in this kingdom are going to be rebellious toward their husbands. And so you cannot set an example as the king. And so that's why he removed her. And then they began to do a search of the kingdom. Now, 50 million people are in the kingdom, so approximately 25 million women are in the kingdom. And they begin to do a search now for a new queen. And they do it in a different way. God, Do you see God's hand here? They look around 25 million women, and Josephus says they came up with 400 women. They were the most beautiful virgins in the, the kingdom, entire world. Okay, so this is a beauty contest, but it's the whole world and there's 400. Okay, and so how hard is it to stand out among 400 women, I wouldn't know that. I don't know. But they all, I imagine it's a hard process, right? Like really difficult to stand out and, you know, really, because, and here's what they had to do. They had to go to the palace for one year. And so they had the finest, you know, cosmetics, the finest uh, lotions, the finest uh everything, and for one year they had to groom the women to look the very best they could possibly look. And each one on a rotation got to visit the king and and talk to him. And so um, when Esther, now here's one thing you may not know, Esther is not her Hebrew name. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah, which means myrtle tree. Uh, But like all the other ones that went in captivity, Daniel had a name that they gave him as well. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they actually took on uh, names of pagan gods. That wasn't their original Hebrew name. Well, Esther, uh, her name is either from a pagan idol called Ishtar or just Star. And so she was renamed as well from her Hebrew name. And get this, Esther's an orphan. She has no family. The only family member she has is a cousin who's about 15 years older than her. Okay, and this cousin adopted her and raised her and took care of her. How many know that her life's pretty broken? But before Esther was ever born, God had a plan. And this woman had to be, when you think of Esther, you need to understand she probably was the most beautiful person in the world at that time. And there was something special about her because she was an orphan. And I and you could just imagine she was tougher than most of the other women. You know, she was in a minority group. She loved the Lord. She was the most beautiful woman in the world. She probably had certain qualities about her that the other women just didn't have because God, from her birth, Esther says she was created for a time such as this. So Esther goes to see the king, and the very moment that he looks at her, he says he loved her more than any other woman that he'd ever seen. Do you get chills again? See, this isn't Esther, this is God. Way before the order was put out to exterminate believers, God was already working. Okay, Mordecai comes onto the scene 15 years older than Esther. He's keeping a close eye on her. And something else, another coincidence. Mordecai has a job inside the gate. Okay, inside the gate is the perimeter to the palace. Those inside the gate work for the government. And I don't know if it was through Esther or just the type of person he was. He had a job inside the palace. And Mordecai just happens to be there. Get this, there is a secret service deep state. You say, no way, you're just making this up. No, Mordecai has a government job inside the gates, and he overhears the security team for the king, the ones who were there to guard the king, and the Bible says had access to the king. They were plotting to assassinate him. Just happened to be, just a coincidence. A coincidence that the king is in love with a Jewish girl. Now get this, Mordecai wisely said, never tell anybody that you're Jewish. 
So he had no idea she was Jewish. Nobody had any idea she was Jewish. Then Mordecai, who's standing at the gate, just happens to overhear an assassination attempt. He goes directly to Esther, who's in the palace with the king, and says, this is what's happening. And Esther was able to tell the king, and the king's life was saved because of Mordecai, the cousin of Esther that took care of her. Now, is this amazing coincidence? It gets better. It's much better than this. So they have records of everything, the Persians. Everything that happened is put into the royal record. In fact, those royal records are so accurate, that's how we know everything that happened in Esther. They actually even know the banqueting rooms and everything they've uncovered. They have all this stuff in museums right now that have uncovered the Persian kingdom. Now, the Greeks did everything they could to destroy the Persian kingdom and their records because they hated the Persians. Okay, Greeks and Persians hated each other, and when the Greeks came through, they 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 you know, tried to restore everybody else's culture, but they tried to destroy everything Persian because they hated them so bad. But the royal record said, write it down, Mordecai saved the life of the king. Well, the king was so busy with his international affairs, he never did anything to reward Mordecai. Never received anything for saving the king's life, never got recognition, nothing. And so keep that in your mind because God's working here. This is important. It's in the record. So, Haman, who is the billionaire, who has $3.48 billion to give to the king, he comes to the king and he says, hey, there's a group of people that are in this kingdom. And he began to, he began to define them as insurrectionists. He said, this is a dangerous group of people. They have their own beliefs. They don't obey anything with the king. They uh, are a threat to your kingdom. But he didn't say who it was. He just said there's a large group of people that do their own thing. They love their God. And what Haman was mad about was that every time he would get around Mordecai especially, because Mordecai was in the administration, uh, Mordecai would never bow to him as a second in command. And the Jews actually say that Mordecai was a pagan uh, astrologer and a worshiper of idols, and he had embroidered on his shirt a pagan idol, and they would never bow to him because of the pagan idol. It's just as Jews, they couldn't do that. But he convinced the king that they were insurrectionists, they were bad, and would you give me permission to deal with this and basically remove that whole group of people to make your kingdom better? And I'm going to give you $3.48 billion, plus we're going to loot everything that they own, so your treasuries are going to be full. And so Haman convinced the king. The king, I think the king probably was busy with so much stuff. Have you ever known people like that? He says he gave him his signet ring and said, yeah, put it into law. And so Haman was an astrologer. He was a pagan worshiper. And so he went to the astrologers and they began to cast lots. And they started to ask their false gods, what day is the best day to murder all of the believers. And so now the Jews today, because of this act of Haman, called it the Feast of Purim. They celebrate it every year, and Purim literally means to cast lots. Because the enemy cast lots over every believer in the world to kill them. And they came up with a date of March the 7th. Every believer is going to die. So they begin to spread the word. Everybody into the story, my born people? It gets better and better, I'm telling you. And so they send horses out all over every province of the known world, fast as they can do it by horse, like Pony Express is what they did. So immediately the Bible says that they sent word to every province that they were going to kill every Jew on March the 7th. Every believer in the world was going to die on that day. Now, How many think so far this is worse than what we're experiencing? March 7th, it's coming up here. And now everybody knows we're going to die on that date. But what they didn't know was God had put a Jew who the king was in love with and thought she was the greatest thing that ever walked on this earth because God knew when she was born every quality that that orphan girl needed to protect his people. So Mordecai tore his clothes, which means he humbled himself. And now you're starting to see what we're supposed to be doing right now. 
He humbled himself and he said, God. And he gathered people in Susa that were believers and he said, pray, fast, seek God. And then he went to Esther and he said, Esther, you have to talk to the king. Well, the problem was this king had just came from a military battle. Just to give an example of his personality, he had to build, he had engineers build a structure to go over into Greece over a body of water. And they built a structure, but then a storm, a violent storm came and it was destroyed. Do you know he cut off the head of every person that worked on that project? I told you he wasn't a good guy. And remember, he already removed one queen. And so she hadn't seen the king in 30 days and hadn't been summoned for 30 days. And you were not allowed to be summoned by the king Unless you were summoned by the king, you were allowed, allowed to be in his presence. And so she had to go into his presence without being on the official summoning list. And if he doesn't extend his scepter, then you die. And so she said, if I die, I die. And she knew that she was called by God for a special purpose. And so she goes before the king, and she's waiting for that reaction from the king. And he extends his scepter, and it says that he was so in love with Esther and loved her so much, he said, Esther, what is it you desire? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Tell me what you want. And she said, I want one thing, nothing else but this. I want to have a banquet with me, you, and Haman. Because she wanted to reveal all the information about treason. I'm telling you, if the conspiracy theories were the worst they could possibly be, it's not worse than this story. But here's what's amazing, God's timing. The day that they were supposed to meet, something happened and they had to reschedule it to the next day. So, oh man, this isn't God then. God had a plan. God doesn't make the plan. God unveils His plan He originally already had. So you say, well, that's terrible because it got rescheduled. Haman goes home. On his way home, he sees Mordecai at the gate. And he looks at Mordecai. And again, Mordecai, I'm not bowing to you. Okay, I love the Lord, <laughs> you know. And, oh, I didn't tell you one thing about Mordecai. I got someone to the store, or uh, Haman. Haman was an Agagite, okay? That means that uh, Agag, who was the king of the, of the uh, Amalekites, when, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, God said the Amalekites would be completely destroyed. They won't even, they'll be extinct from the earth because when Israel, my son, came out of Egypt, they were, the Amalekites are actually Esau's son Amalek started the Amalekites. He's the founder of the Amalekite empire. And so it's their relative. How many know that? Esau and Jacob were brothers. And so the Amalekites were related to him. Well, when Israel came out of Egypt, this is um, almost 800 years before all this happened. No, actually 1,000 years. 1,000-year-old rivalry here. And they attack Israel and try to destroy him. And they were weak, they, had, they were weary, they had children, they had women. It says they attacked the women and the children. It was repulsive. They wanted to completely wipe Israel out because they knew the promises that Jacob had, and Esau's family hated that. They hated the promises that Jacob had because they felt like they stole it from them through the birthright. And so they have a deep-seated hatred for Jews, Believers, okay? It goes a little further. Saul is supposed to completely wipe out the Amalekites in that battle. He refuses to do what God says. So because he refuses to do what God says, God removes him as king. Samuel puts to death Agag, the king. Now guess why they hated Israel? Agag was put to death. Saul was supposed to kill all of them. Now you push down 500 years later, they hate believers or Jews of that day more than any other group in the world. They have a deep-seated hatred that goes back a thousand years, maybe more, because of Esau. 
And so the second in command, the vice president of the known world at that time, a billionaire who's put his entire fortune into wiping out Jews, believers, is now plotting to exterminate them. You say, well, wow, does that, have, does that compare to anything today? How many know that uh, if you have a wealthy Jewish person today, they have a deep-seated hatred. Now, now, if you're in Israel and they're, they're, they're you know, believers, Jewish believers in Israel, they love evangelicals more than anything. But there are a lot of wealthy Jewish people around the world that they hate Christians. Because for a thousand years, what has happened? Most of their punishment has been through Catholic Church. They've dominated Jews and were anti-Semitic and were cruel to Jews. So there are non-believing Jews that hate Christians. And they would love nothing more than to wipe out the Christian population of the world. It's a deep-seated hatred. So very similar things going on here. But this Agagite, what's fascinating about the story is, it's almost like God was saying, if you'd have listened to me 500 years ago, Saul, this wouldn't have happened. The reason why I say that is because Mordecai and Esther are direct descendants of Saul the Benjamite. The, the, the scripture points out that they're direct relatives of Saul, and Haman is a direct relative, as direct as you can get, to Agag the Amalekite. And so it's almost like God's saying, I'm going to fulfill what I said in Numbers back in the days of Moses. I'm going to fulfill it just like it should have been fulfilled by you, but you didn't listen to me. And so do you know that Haman's family is pretty well extinct after he gives the order to kill all the Jews, it's reversed, and his whole family ends up dying, and that culture ends up becoming extinct. God fulfilled his promise. See, God's plan was like a thousand years old, and Esther was born to be... Everybody following me still? So let's go on. We got this one night that this is rescheduled. Now follow me here. This is where it gets really good. One night, it's rescheduled to the next night, and you say, well, maybe God's not in this. Well, Haman goes home all excited because he's invited to a banquet with the king and the queen. He doesn't know she's Jewish. He doesn't know that she knows about the plot. This is a deep state, secret service plot. Nobody uh, knows about the original one. He's part of that. And then, and then he has an order and a day where he's going to exterminate all of them. But he doesn't know the queen is Jewish. So on his way home, he sees Mordecai. And boy, his blood just boils. And so he goes home and he says, you know what? I'm going to build some gallows to hang Mordecai first. And when I go to the king tomorrow, the first thing I'm going to tell him is, the plan is on track, but I want to go on and hang Mordecai first because he's the leader of the insurrection. Does this sound familiar to deep state today? (laughs) Mordecai is the leader. I want to hang him first. The first question I'm going to ask at the banquet is, because he thinks the banquet's in his honor. He doesn't realize that the queen has a plan. And so on the other end of it, the king Xerxes, he can't sleep. So this one night turns out to be critical because Xerxes can't sleep. So what do you do when you can't sleep? He says, pull out the royal records. I want to read them. And I guess like reading the phone book, it makes you sleepy. I don't know. But they pull the royal records out, and these are massive records all the way back to Cyrus. So which record do you think they end up pulling out? The exact day that Mordecai saved the life of the king is what he read that night. And it hit him. He said, you know what? That's Esther's cousin, and I never did anything for him. I never thanked him for his loyalty. So the next day at the banquet, the first question that Haman has for the king is what? Can I hang Mordecai? But God woke him up to read the royal record, and the royal record said, I never thanked this man for saving my life. So Xerxes asked the question first. He says, Haman, what should be done to a man that was so loyal to me and and needs to be honored? What should I do to him? And he thought he was talking about him. This is God's plans I'm telling you about, okay? I hope you're getting chills like me. It's not just because it's cold in here. First question he asks is, what should I do with a man such as this? 
And he never mentions the name Mordecai. Haman says, oh, put him on your finest horse. Let somebody come in and groom him, put the nicest clothes on him, uh, escort him through the town and have a parade in his honor. And he goes, Haman, do that for me. So Haman is the one that has to give him a haircut, dress him up in the finest king's clothes, put him on a horse of the king's, take him through town. How much do you think he hated that? The guy that wouldn't bow to him. And so then Esther says, I brought Haman here and you here for one reason. Because I want you to know that I am Jewish. Now remember, the king is crazy about Esther. He loves her, everything about her, her personality. How many think she had a great personality because she was an orphan? Loving, trusting. I think she was like his best friend. I think the beauty of Esther was not as great as her personality. Because that's how you, she stood out among everybody the most beautiful and the best in the country. And she says, I'm Jewish. And it dawned on King Xerxes that I wrote a death sentence for my wife. And it says he was furious. And Haman is sitting there thinking to himself, wow, she's Jewish. Can you imagine what he was thinking at that moment? And it says the king stormed out, went into his gardens to think about what just happened because he was furious, he was angry. He signed a death sentence for the woman he loved more than any person in the world. And by the way, he just came off of a defeat in Greece, which he couldn't have been too happy about either. And as he's out in the garden angry... Haman bows down to Esther and is just begging her, please have mercy on me, please have mercy on me, please have mercy on him, on me. And when the king came in, he thought Haman was assaulting her. And so immediately, Haman was hung on the gallow that he built for Mordecai. But the king still had a problem. Once you put an order in a Persian law... You have to fulfill the law. You can't rescind it. So he couldn't take away the order that they were allowed to kill all of the Jewish people. So what does the king do? The only thing he could do legally was pass another order. The new order was, you are welcome to kill the Jews, but we are giving them permission to defend themselves, and we're going to help them defend themselves. And so the day of March 7th came... And the Jews not only defended themselves, but they wiped out the whole family of Haman. In fact, his ten sons ended up, by the end of the day, all being hung. And so the the kingdom was purged. And guess who the vice president was after all of that? Mordecai. All of the wealth of the all of the wealth of Haman's family was given to Esther. And guess what she did with it? She gave it to Mordecai. Mordecai becomes the vice president of the world because God had a plan. Church, can I tell you something? There's a lot going on in the world right now, and I don't know how to make sense of it. But one thing I do know by the Word of God, if you read it and understand it in context, God's got this. we got to trust God. we got to pray to God. You know, these people had to arm themselves and defend themselves, too. I can't take that away from the story. You say, well, Jesus said that was not right. He never said that that was wrong. There's all kinds of places in the Bible. Sometimes it's, you know, all I can say is the plan of God's always different. This particular one, they armed themselves and, and had to defend themselves because he couldn't rescind that law. Okay? Other places, they pray and fast and angels do the work. You know, every place is different. And what I'm saying is if we don't have a relationship With the Lord, we won't know what His plan is because God doesn't make plans. He unfolds them. Remember that. He unfolds them. So we've got to, number one, we've got to relax. God's got this. All right? God's got you. You wake up every day and go, oh, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? Just prepare the best you can. Trust God. Because God, let me read this one more time, and I'm going to close with this. 
Worship team, you can come up here. We'll read this one more time. You know what? I wrote 30 pages of notes, and because my letters are bigger, I have to do two of them now. And I didn't look at my notes one time. Jeremiah 29, 11. I want you to think about it again. This is the truth if I've ever heard it. I know, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope, hope, and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. Church, we've got to love the Lord God with all of our heart because He has a plan. We can't do like Israel did and forget about Him and allow the enemy to wreck God's plans for our life. We've got to trust God through the harshest times. Quit trying to figure out everything in the world yourself and let's trust God every day. Let's worship Him. Let's pray to Him. Let's love Him. Let's be the Christians God's called us to be because this story was going to kill every believer in the world, and God had a plan well in advance. Every time the enemy's playing checkers, just remember, God's saying, checkmate, I'm playing a bigger game here. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. Lord, bring this word to our remembrance every time we're stressed, every time we worry, Lord God, of anxiety, Lord God, every time we're try to fix the problems of the world ourselves. Lord God, every time we don't trust you, Lord, let this be a lesson among many that we can trust you with everything, Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm going to open the altars. If you've never given your heart to the Lord, today is the day. There may not be tomorrow. And if you don't trust the Lord today, you'll be lost for eternity. So I want you to find a place if you need prayer. Maybe everybody thins out a little bit. And you come to me and ask for prayer. But the main thing is we pray, we get right with the Lord. The Bible says that if you call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. But the other way is true too. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord, if you don't trust in the Lord, then you're not saved. And you're lost for eternity. And the other other thing I want to really call to prayer is if you are stressed, you're full of anxiety, you're not trusting the Lord in this time, you think it's the worst time we've ever had, just know today you can trust the Lord. And I want you to find a place, we're just going to close and worship. It seemed like it was long, but it's 10 till 12. So let's take some time to just say, Lord, I trust you. I give up the stress, I give the anxiety. Maybe the stress isn't world events, maybe the stress is work. Maybe the stress is family. You know, the opposite of trusting is anxiety, worry, stress. Trusting is peace. Like, man, I don't know what's going to happen here at work. I don't know what's going to happen in my family. I don't know what's going to happen here or there. But you know what? I have peace and I have trust because God watches over the sparrow. So how much more does he watch over me? Hallelujah. Let's give it to the Lord today, all right? need prayer, I'm up here. Trusting you, we're going to go to bed trusting you. 
Lord, we're going to cast away our cares, our worries, our anxieties, our fears, because you didn't give us that spirit, Lord. That's the enemy. We're going to walk in peace and love and joy and patience and long-suffering, Lord God, self-control, Lord God, because we trust you. Do that today, Lord God. Bless your people, Lord. Let them know how special we are to you, Lord. The plans that you have for us, Lord. Bless them today, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Thank you, Lord.